0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Nasdaq Dorsey Wright podcast. Today is Wednesday, June seventeenth. I'm Eric Mcardle, and joining me today is John Lewis, our portfolio manager out in sunny Pasadena, California. John, how are you?
1: I'm doing great, although it's really cloudy here today. So we don't we don't pay the taxes that we do for clouds, so we're a
0: little unhappy at the moment. Oh, I can understand that, and. Uh, that California sunshine is important, right? And um, you know, out here in Virginia, we are we are rainy as well, so we can relate to you. But John, last we spoke, the world looked a whole lot different. Uh, we haven't had you on the pod in a while, and we figured it'd be a great opportunity to catch up with you, learn about you know some of the different perspectives that that you've really been focusing on, and make sure that we're looking at all different angles of relative strength and momentum. So uh, I want to start off by by bringing in your thoughts on domestic equities and you know, what uh, relative strength has looked like in that universe in recent months. Yeah, I mean, it's
1: really been a wild ride this year um, in terms of the kind of the leader laggard relationship. It's not often we see this sort of volatility uh, in that relationship and just, you know, before we get to the spread that that's on the screen, um, You know just anecdotally we have had some massive massive days where the laggards will outperform the leaders by three four five percent uh and then the next day it'll just flip back the other way Um, and you can see that in the growth value relationship you can see that in the large cap versus small cap relationship it's just been an incredibly volatile period with these different buckets kind of performing on different days and that makes it really, really difficult in the short term to do trading to kind of position your portfolios because there's just a lot of short-term risk in making a decision in that sort of environment. Um, I'm sure you guys are seeing that on your side, Eric. When you know you're writing stuff up for the report, and you you know you might put something in, and then you know, kind of the next day you're looking and it's down a significant amount or up or whatever. And it's, it's just been kind of day to day, a really difficult type of environment
0: to implement these strategies. Absolutely. You know, in just the past month, we've seen significant mean reversion events kind of in both directions, right? Between uh, mid and small caps catching up with the large caps uh, before ultimately, you know, selling off last week. And then now, you know, kind of moving back in line with how that longer-term relationship has looked. Um, but outside the the size categories, same thing on the style front, right? We've seen value-focused uh, equity positions, uh, formerly really known as the, the, the laggards, right? And we could say that uh, they have reclaimed that laggard title on a long-term basis. But over the last you know 30, 45 days, a lot of these laggard groups and sectors have been pure uh, RS leaders on a near-term basis. So uh, I I can attest to that point, John, we we have had a lot of rotation in this near-term and it's been, it's been difficult, right? It's been a hard thing to be tactical in this environment. And I think that it's important to, you know, keep in mind as an investor here, number one, what your time horizon is, right? If you're trading or or playing these positions on a week to week or month to month basis um, and then acting accordingly, Um, But also keeping in mind that we've had long term leadership, such as large cap growth, really maintain dominance uh, leading up to the market environment that we've experienced and then coming out the other end still as a long term leader.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, what, what we're both referring to in this kind of near term laggard leadership shows up really, really well on this domestic spread chart. So what this chart does, for those of you who don't know, is it measures the performance of a basket of, of leading stocks versus a basket of, of low momentum or laggard stocks. And we just take the top quintile and the bottom quintile uh, and compare them, each compare their performance each day and kind of link that together over time. And when the spread rises, That's a good environment for momentum. The leaders are outperforming the laggards. And we're not saying that one is going up and the other is going down. We're just saying on a relative basis, um, the leaders are doing better than the laggards. So they could both be going down. They could both be going up. But what you want to see is that spread rising. And over long periods of time, it does rise. Um, The leaders are the place to be over long periods over long time horizons. But as you mentioned, Eric, uh, more recently, we've seen the laggards. And that, you can see that really, really sharp drop in the spread. And that's that laggard outperformance. So the things that did really, really poorly in the decline earlier this year. So, you know, think about things like airlines and energy and cruise lines and all that kind of stuff that has really, really bounced back. Um, and that's that kind of laggard outperformance that we're seeing. It's, that's a really, really tricky game to play. You have to be very, very tactical. And that stuff historically has had big moves, but it doesn't last forever. And so that's kind of where we are now. We've seen this big, big laggard rally, and we're starting to maybe get to the point where that looks like it could peter out, and we can see that maybe in a diffusion index when we talk about that a little later.
0: Now, John, I want to come back to one of the specific areas in the market that you mentioned energy here in a moment. But before we go to that, um, I I do have a question for you and want to get your insights on this. You know, with the acknowledgement that it it is a difficult market, that we've had leadership uh, rotating in and out on fast clips, um, what kind of advice do you have for for those who are listening to this and managing money um, as far as maybe looking at their portfolios on a certain cadence or frequency? Um, anything that you can impart to those at home? Yeah, that's a great question.
1: so um, you know for those out there who are listening that know anything about what we do here, you know we tend to be very, very systematic and model driven uh, with all of our strategies and so they do kind of have examination periods or rebalance frequencies. And we tend to set those up, um, the rules set up in order to kind of manage those more effectively. So, I mean, we have stuff that, that um, will look at things on a weekly basis, some stuff is quarterly. So I think the, how frequently you examine it isn't as important as kind of how you set your rules set up to manage that frequency. And by that I mean, what you don't wanna do is you don't wanna get into the situation where, for example, you're going to look at something weekly and you've got an, uh, a ranking system or an indicator that's uh, going to generate way too many signals. Um, it really is important with this momentum investing methodology that you trade the trend and you don't trade the noise. So. If you're flipping your positions out constantly, there's a lot of short-term noise that exists in the market. And when you trade on that, it really is problematic. And we've written some white papers on that over the years. If you're looking, you know, for an amount of data that you want to use, like somewhere between like a 6 and 12 month window of prices is really kind of the measurement where all the alpha is. So it's not like you should be reacting to all these little moves all the time. And that's why when you have a laggard rally like this that takes place over, you know, 30, 60 days, something like that, um, it's really, really difficult for a momentum strategy to handle because if you have your your system kind of calibrated to pick that up super quick, then at other times you wind up getting whipsawed a lot. And a lot of times we'll, we'll refer to that as being killed by the paper cuts. So um, it is a difficult thing to go through when it's happening, but you really do need that kind of long-term vision. And whether you're gonna look at your portfolio portfolios weekly monthly quarterly they can all work right what you just want to do is make sure that when you're examining them you're not doing things too quickly and trying to like get ahead of the trend you really need to follow that trend well said
0: now i want to shift gears a little bit and talk about what to me has been the laggard in the domestic equity market over the past few years uh, namely, energy, right? which, as a as a sector, a large cap value constituent um, has really, really struggled and has has had some trouble with the underlying uh, fluctuations in the commodity of crude oil that can drive energy stock performance. Um, it's just been a, a tough place to be for investors over the past few years. However, off this market bottom, we've seen energy, Really ascend to new heights, at least on a recent historical basis. And in fact, uh, what we're showing here is our, our dynamic asset level investing tool on the Nasdaq Dorsey Wright platform, where energy has ascended to the top-ranked sector group in dollars. And one of the things that John, I want to get your opinion on today, you know, because I think it's it's important. We've talked about the the systematic approach behind using momentum, behind using relative strength and trend in your practice, uh, we want to maybe take a look under the hood at what drove energy to the number one sector ranking, and then pair that with another type of uh, trend and relative strength measurement that we use on the NASDAQ Dorsey Wright platform called the fund score. And so, John, I'll, I'll turn it over to you. When you're looking at a sector like energy, can you give us some idea for, you know, what has really driven energy to the top of the sector rankings from a purely RS perspective?
1: Yeah, so from a purely RS perspective, it, I think it really depends on what tool you're using to measure momentum. And we'll get into that, I, I think, a little bit more, but the Dolly tool, right, really uses point-and-figure Uh, relative strength exclusively to do all this scoring and if you think about how point and figure is constructed it takes time out of the equation and it really focuses on uh, volatility and price movement right so what what you see with energy is you see something that has been beaten up for a number of years as you've mentioned in fact i mean it has gone from i think it was 2013 maybe maybe 2011 Um, It was, you know, double digits in terms of weight in the S&P 500, and it has just underperformed since then and has cranked all the way down to below, you know, 3% or so of the S&P 500. So it has been a dramatic underperformer for a number of years. Um, But getting back to kind of what's gone on more recently, when you have a lot of price volatility um, with a point and figure chart, it gets very, very easy to generate buy and sell signals. So as these things get very volatile um, and like we saw near the bottom uh, in the reversal up, there are a lot of back and forth columns that get get put in um, and it makes it very easy to give a new buy signal, a new column switch, that sort of thing. So that's why you see like in a point and figure type of method, you can see energy doing very, very well uh, but if you rank it on, say, a trailing 12-month performance, it might not be anywhere near as good as if you're doing it on a kind of a point-and-figure methodology. So there are definitely, like, conflicting signals going on, um, and it really just kind of has to do with how you're choosing to measure, quote, momentum
0: uh, at, at any one given time. Great. And for those of you who are are tuning in, we do have a YouTube version of this podcast in which we're showing a chart uh, relative strength between the Energy Select Spider ETF and the S&P 500 index on a 3.25 RS scale. And that does provide a pretty solid picture of what John was explaining about the long term underperformance, the volatility off the bottom and then the subsequent buy signal. That energy has moved to. And, you know, John, as as you alluded to, and as you mentioned with regard to uh, the the strength of the signals and just the differing of, uh, you know, the different types of methodology here, the the energy trade has actually been pretty good so far, right? Acting on this signal, Um, it's been an an opportunistic play that has worked out well so far. Um, So, you know, that signal, while maybe surprising to people when looking at the longer term picture for the sector or even the longer term relative strength chart, um, has thus far been fruitful. Right. And, and so, as you mentioned, the, the consistency of momentum across the different methodologies in terms of providing those longer term, uh, you know, what you hope to be outperformance um, so far standing up here. But the, the contrasting example that, that we have and we get a lot of questions on internally are the fund score method, which is a, a different way of looking at relative strength and, and ultimately trend on the NASDAQ Dorsey right platform. And for those of you at home, uh, that fund score is ranging from zero to six, with a six being the best. Three or better is acceptable and four or better is considered optimal. And we assign this score to every ETF and mutual fund on the NASDAQ Dorsey Wright platform. um, And they update daily, even if by a a very slight margin, right? It's a very dynamic reading. Whereas uh, a relative strength signal, as we looked at before, a buy or a sell, is a little more static, right? We're really just focused on that confirmation of strength or weakness to determine where we ultimately want to allocate capital. But in the fund score, John, we look at XLE, we see a score of 2.10. And now, you know, as as I mentioned before, that's below the 3.0 optimal fund score. Um, But we've seen a really sharp and robust move off the bottom. Notice that positive score direction of 1.97. So nearly all of the score component has been attributed in the last six months of price movement. Um, and when we look at the chart for, for XLE, and we, we zoom in a little bit more on the, the recent chart action, we see multiple uh, consecutive buy signals off the bottom, some consolidation in, in the, the interim as far as you know, May and June goes. Um, but overall, we have a, a nice secondary trend that is formed on this chart. And so, again, conferring back to the pure RS view of DALI, Uh, this opportunistic play has been has been a good one right and so we we think it's important just to be transparent with you all at home regarding the different types of momentum the different types of readings that that we can uh, come to on the site and on the platform and just saying that most of the time they're going to match up and most of the time they're going to get you where you need to be Um, but in some cases you will have a little bit of a different reading so um, Just worth keeping in mind, right? We're looking at the trend component with that fund score, um, as well as relative strength and peer relative strength. So good so, stuff, John. So, I, I'm glad. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, yeah let, me, let me
1: just add a little a little bit to that because I think it's important that, that people know kind of from a macro view, um, you know, what we're talking about when when we talk about like different ways to measure relative strength and momentum and that, I think people get confused by that a lot of times. And I think if we can put it into context, it's, it's no different than when you're looking at value um, and value measures for certain stocks, there's different ways to do it. And those don't always line up either. You can have a stock that is very, uh, that scores very well on a price to sales basis, but does not score well on a price to book basis. You could have you know, something scores well on price earnings, but does not score well on price to cash flow. So there are different ways that people measure value. Um, there are not any right or wrong ways to do it. It's just different ways to look at things. The same is true for momentum, right? There are different ways to measure it, whether it's a pure point and figure method whether it's like a fund score type of method, whether you're just using a a price window, whether you're putting moving averages on it, all of these things work over time. Um, Again, we have white papers on that too, where where we test a number of different types of of methods and uh, price windows and things like that. Some historically work better than others. Um, We have no idea whether that will hold true in the future. We believe it will. Um, But, you know, maybe 12 months test best and maybe nine months works uh, better going forward. But what we do know is that this idea of buying and holding strong stocks is ultimately what drives the portfolio. And it's less about the individual names and more about the method about cutting the losers out and reallocating those funds to the winners in a very systematic and disciplined basis right, and when you think about what we're trying to do with Momentum, ultimately we're trying to capture big multi-year moves, whether it be in sectors, whether it be in individual stocks. I know if you read the Daily Equity Report, um, I think it was yesterday where you guys put in Danaher, which has been on a buy signal forever. Um, Those are the types of things that you want to find. And the reality is you make most of your money in these strategies off a small number of the trades, kind of the 80-20 rule. 20% of your trades are really gonna drive like 80% of your profits, right? So what we're doing is we're trying to get these multi-year trends and it doesn't happen all the time. And so when you get these conflicting signals, right, where one, measure is telling you one thing and another is telling you another thing, it's not really a problem, right? Because what's going to happen is if energy, for example, turns out to be a big multi-year uptrend that you have to be in, eventually everything gets you there, right? A strong stock, strong sector, right? Eventually it's all going to get you there. And something might get you in sooner, something might get you in later, but you're really looking to make your money in the meat of the move, right? Not at the very beginning or the very end. And you might get conflict, conflicting signals, but let's face it, a strong stock is a strong stock no matter how you measure it, right? And those are those kind of like 20 percenters where you make all your gains. Everything is going to align. Um, so the advice I would have when you get these conflicting signals is, you know, go with kind of how you've set your process up and just follow it. And if something is lagging, right, it'll eventually get you there if it really is that strong. And if you're getting in early, you know, you might have stuff down the road that you get in early and then it turns around and that's, uh, that's a whipsaw. That's kind of the downside of doing it that way. So there's no right way or wrong way. The right way is really to follow your process, to be very disciplined about it and to realize where you're looking to make all your money, which is in the middle of that move. And like I said, once you kind of get there and things are strong, all these measures are gonna line up and that's really
0: where you're looking to make the majority of your money anyway. Yeah, what a great reminder. You know, I think, I think just reaffirming that, trusting the process and that we're looking for those long-term uh, trends, is really, you know, the, the name of the game here for most of our clients and most of our investors. Um, John, good stuff. I, I'd like to pivot a little bit and look outside the U.S. Um, you know, which of course has been a, a primary focus for most people in terms of being a, an RS leader on a macro perspective. Uh, but shifting abroad, right? We've we've had a uh, not only an interesting 2020 in the U.S., but of course around the globe. Um, you know, we we've had a ton of, of turmoil and, and reverberation from this uh, financial and healthcare crisis. Uh, impacting international markets. What does the picture look like abroad from a momentum perspective and are, are there any takeaways that you know, we can glean away from some of the, the pure RS data that we've seen?
1: Yeah, so if we look at just kind of like asset class rankings, um, you know, in Dali, for example, international just you know, isn't anywhere near where we are uh, on a domestic level. But that's not saying that we haven't been able to find opportunities there. Um, I think it's just been a little more difficult. And I think you've just had to be, frankly, like a little bit more creative about finding your opportunities. It's not, those aren't areas where you're just kind of throwing a dart at a large cap weighted benchmark and it's working out. But if you're willing to kind of overweight certain countries, Or overweight certain stocks maybe go you know differ from the benchmark the performance has been there and we've seen that um, in our international strategy it's having a very very good year after having uh, a good year last year and that really relies uh, a little bit more on individual stock picking rather than just kind of having a large uh, broad market benchmark Um, and we can see that if we look at the spreads um we also have those um on an international basis and if you look at the developed spread and the emerging spread um they look somewhat similar to the u.s um, In that they've had they had nice runs uh, and and the leaders really did hold up well during the decline and over the last you know month two months we've seen a big laggard rally there now the biggest difference between the two spreads is the emerging spread has been much, much stronger than the developed spread, uh, which is interesting. Just meaning that the dispersion between the leaders and the laggards on the emerging market side has been much more pronounced. um, And we've seen kind of a much better trend uh, leading up into this laggard rally on the emerging side. So um, while things aren't ranked as highly from an asset class perspective, In international. We're finding that there are good opportunities there. Um, If you're willing to have a lot of active share in the portfolio, which just means if you're willing to differentiate from the benchmark and and look around for some opportunities, they're definitely there. Um, And you can generate some good performance, even though the asset class as a whole isn't ranked as highly as some of the other asset classes out there.
0: That's really interesting. Looking at the emerging spread being as high as it is overall, and I, I think one of the surprises that we've communicated in our research on the international equity side um, within emerging markets is the strength of Chinese equities. Uh, you know, and coming uh, with the corona, the coronavirus, uh, COVID nineteen outbreak originating in China, and then of course, you know, them, them being kind of the pioneer on the shutdown from an economic standpoint. Um, it, it just is one of those points where I think if you are using technical analysis in your practice, um, being able to identify price movement and separate away from whatever is in the headlines or whatever prevailing narrative is being passed around is so powerful in being able to identify you know, opportunities for outperformance. So um, just kind of tying those those two points together on the Chinese equities and emerging uh, market side. Um, but yeah, good, good stuff, John. I, I, I'm with you. I think as long as you use RS in a systemic way uh, across different asset classes, you should get the same results, right? It's just, just putting different names on the investments, all things considered, and being able to utilize a, uh, a momentum-based approach to find winners and avoid losers. So with that, we'll shift gears one more time uh, to our final broad asset class for today's update. And we're going to look at fixed income, which has had a ton of leadership rotation uh, over the past few months and of course has been uh, more volatile than than what one might expect in being a a bond investor, right? We've seen uh, significant changes. We've seen a continued downtrend on a long-term basis of uh, long-term interest rates. And of course, uh, Fed policy is certainly a topic of discussion for not only bond investors, but investors in all asset classes. And so John, with that backdrop, what have we seen from a tactical fixed income approach and and, you know, what has worked? uh, What, what have we seen from a, a changing perspective as the market has experienced this volatility? Yeah,
1: I mean volatility. I think is the key word here. It's been really been a roller coaster. Um, I don't. I don't think that <laughs> fixed income investors are used to this kind of volatility, and we've seen things really, really shift around quite a bit this year from a risk on, risk off type of perspective. So, uh, you know, before the decline. Uh, we had risk on in, in our tactical fixed income strategy. We were aggressively positioned uh, things like corporates and high yield and emerging market bonds and even convertible bonds. Um, that all kind of unwound during the decline and, the, and our strategy like really, really went risk averse. A lot of short-term treasuries came in, um, even long-term uh, U.S. treasuries, and, and that was great Um, As you mentioned, you know, the Fed lowering rates to try to stimulate the economy. Um, That really, really helped during that period. And then we've seen it kind of come full circle and go the other way back to risk on. And we've seen all that risk come back into the portfolio. Um, The Fed, again, has really helped. They've, uh, you know, committed to buying a ton of not only ETFs, um, you know, high yield bond ETFs, Uh, investment grade corporate ETFs, for example, but, you know, now they're starting to buy individual bonds. So they are really, really um, helping from a risk perspective, you know, kind of clean up anything that might be a problem and just support that whole area. So we've seen that kind of come back and it's really paid to move around and to be tactical this year. And there's been some really, really big swings
0: that you could have capitalized on. Yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, just the the movement, you know, out of risk and then back into it um, is is really, I think that would be a difficult thing to manage in any environment, you know, but, but to do so without relative strength and to do so without the, the tools that we provide on the platform. Um, I, I know I would certainly be flying blind here. So uh, when we look at the, the DALI rankings that are up on the screen once more, Within fixed income, as you mentioned, John, we see those those riskier uh, credit-based assets that have moved back to the top of the dollar rankings, including preferreds and convertibles, high-yield debt, and then U.S. corporate and the third-ranked overall uh, sub-asset class spot. Um, but as you mentioned, John, with the volatility that we've seen in, in fixed income and you know, notably in, in a tactical fixed income strategy that has had to, to reshift and, and figure out you know, where it needs to be from a risk and reward standpoint as the market has changed. Uh, One observation that we've been been pointing out is just the strength of core bonds in general and how they've held up extremely well. And so, you know, from a management perspective and from an asset allocation perspective, we think it's worth the reminder that pairing a tactical strategy with a core bond strategy uh, is really a great way to to maintain exposure to the asset class right because in times where you need to be a little bit more risk on and and when you're you can afford to be a little bit more risk on you want the ability to do that however the core bond exposure gives you something more akin to what you might expect of traditional bond exposure um, in that you might get a little bit less volatility when the market draws down Um, you might have a little bit more of of an expected outcome so you know, notably when we look at one of the main core bond index products, the iShares U.S. Core Bond ETF (ticker: AGG), uh, we we pointed out here recently in our research that the fund has moved back to a buy signal with a triple top break at 117.80, which has catapulted it back into a positive trend. And you know, just revisiting that fund score concept from before. AGGs is a 5.23, which is stellar by all measures, and so really a testament to not only the trending strength of of the fund and of core bonds in general, but also of the relative strength picture against other asset classes like equities. So, you know, bond exposure, definitely something that is worth paying close attention to here, uh, we, we looked at Dolly earlier and noticed that fixed income is near the top of those rankings, still outranking domestic equities. So while we see opportunities in U.S. stocks and we think that there is certainly a position there, uh, it, it is not a good time to neglect that bond piece of the portfolio. So well, with that, John, I, I think we've gone around the world and back. Um, you know, it, it, is, it is always great hearing from you and, and catching up with you and getting your your insights and perspective. Um, we have a couple of places where we can can follow you and then the work that your team is doing out west. Uh, on our platform, we can go up to the models and products section and then look at products. Uh, the products are going to show the SMA strategies and ETFs that the uh, NASDAQ Dorsey Wright team here in Richmond and out in Pasadena put together. Um, so if you are at home and you're looking for some different ways to implement momentum or implement relative strength across different asset classes, uh, it's a great place to look. Additionally, John, one of my favorite parts of the site, because uh, you know by now we're all kind of geeks for this stuff, under the resources section and media and education, uh, you've got a number of white papers that you've published, uh, and you alluded to some of those earlier in the call. Um, For those of you at home listening or watching, I highly recommend checking these out, Um, looking at the RS box sizes, uh, RS signals. Those are some of my favorite, That I know John has had a a big impact on our research and what we've communicated uh, by publishing. So be sure to check those out. Uh, They're great evidence that backs up what we're doing. Uh, as far as a management perspective, but also they, they're great collateral to share with your clients and really give them some confidence in momentum-based strategies. With that, thank you all for joining us this week. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to reach out to us at 804-320-8511 or drop us a line at dwa at dorseywright.com. We always love hearing from you and we like your feedback as far as what you like about today's uh, presentation and what you think we could improve upon. And with that, we'll talk to you next week.